Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 299 of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Artistically Healing, an interview with Carly Rudd. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, this podcast has been actually transformational for us here at Tick Bootcamp because it gave us a very different perspective from which to look at healing. You see, in most cases, we are looking at healing from metaphors that come from the scientific community, or in many cases, from the project management community. And we use metaphors like seed and soil, and looking at your healing as a project manager or seeing yourself as a project. And this young woman who's an artist, who's the daughter of artists and granddaughter of artists, actually took an artistic view to her healing. And I believe that as a result of her understanding the symphony of the human body, rather than looking at something from a very scientific or mathematical metaphor, she was able to compress time. She was able to use a lot of the healing modalities that many of us are using, but she was using them in a way that was multi-sensory and allowed her to receive information in a multi-sensory fashion. Folks, I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast, and we're really excited to introduce to you Artistically Healing with Carly Rudd. Hey, Carly Rudd, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So Carly, tell folks a little bit about you, uh, and we're going to build out your background in a minute, but talk. let's talk a little bit about your Instagram and what you do professionally, because I think this is something that's going to really interest folks. Sure. I'm a travel photographer. I have been, you know, prior to the pandemic, I, for about five years, was living nomadically, traveling around the world, and taking photographs. I was a full-time and still am a full-time freelance photographer um, with a passion for travel. And I also consider myself an artist. I sell fine art prints and capture beauty all around the world. So as somebody who captures beauty through the lens of a camera, uh, talk about where folks could, could find you in your work. Obviously, this is an audio podcast, so they didn't see uh, the Instagram handle that I put up when we took our initial picture. So where can folks find your, you know, your beautiful work on Instagram? Sure. My, my work can be found at Carly's camera, which my husband came up with that cheeky Instagram handle um, years ago and, and kind of stuck. So Carly's camera on Instagram and my website is just my name, carlyred.com. All right, Carly. So now let's uh, let's build out where you're from, and we'll talk a little bit about your background. Are you currently living in uh, in Maine? I am. I live in a town called Cape Elizabeth. It's just outside of Portland, Maine. And uh, Maine, of course, has uh, become a very important uh, state in the Lyme world, right? You were you your state was pretty quiet until recently, and now Lyme seems to have been. Uh, aggressively invading the state of Lyme to talk to oh, the state of Lyme, the state of Maine. So talk to us a little bit about how things are changing in Maine over the last couple of years and, and how are folks reacting to the number of Lyme disease cases that are being diagnosed in, in, in Maine now? Sure. I mean, I think ticks have always been around in Maine. Um, as, a, as a child growing up here, I definitely, you know, played in the woods and would have ticks on me and pluck them off. And that was just part of the summer. And I will say, though, it's it's pretty wild how prevalent it has become, especially like you said, in recent years, it, you know, just any sort of trail you start walking down, there's big warning signs about ticks now. You never used to see that when I was a kid. And and um, almost everybody that I talk to 
now knows somebody that has Lyme disease or is going through Lyme disease themselves. So I think it, it's pretty wild how quickly it's grown and how prevalent it is. But I, I do think, you know, Maine has always kind of been part of that New England epicenter and, and ticks have always been around here. But in recent years, it's blown up. Yeah, so the ticks have always been around, right? But the illness doesn't seem to have been always around, at least in the state of Maine, right? When we when we look back at how things are changing and the number of diagnoses that that we're now identifying, you know, we here on Long Island and and, and everyone around the rim of the uh, Long Island Sound have been getting sick for as long as fifty years, right? I mean, it's been a long, long time. My childhood, and we all know I'm an old man. Uh, during my childhood, we were tick aware and we were Rocky Mountain fever. Uh, spotted right. fever aware and then of course Lyme after that but you know we weren't seeing large numbers in Maine until recently so what do you think has changed between again, your childhood and you're very young and yeah. now your 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 young adult life um with uh, the number of not just ticks but the number of people being diagnosed with Lyme disease yeah it's a really interesting question I mean I think Maine and I say this in the best way possible is it's always like 10 years behind the rest of the world where, you know, there's still lots of places that don't even have cell phone service. Um, so I think Maine, you know, Lyme disease could have been prevalent, but now with the testing and the facilities and just the general awareness that people have that, you know, they may have had symptoms years ago and not known what Lyme disease was or that their symptoms were related to Lyme disease. So I think that plays into it a little bit. And then the other thing I'll say is I, I think too that there's just so many more toxins in our world that are entering our bodies and that plays a huge role in it, right? So, you know, 10 years ago, people, you know, maybe the <clears throat> the food sources or water sources or just general wellness was at a better place than it is now. So I think with Lyme disease, they say, you know, it's never just Lyme. So I think in general, people are just sicker and Lyme is getting triggered um, more frequently. So Carly, we always talk about the toxic soup that we're living in, and we certainly agree with everything you just said, which is, you know, there are more toxins and, and the physical world that we're living in is very, very different, right? The food we're eating is different. The water that we're drinking is different. The, you know, the, 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 the petrochemicals that we're absorbing. I mean, we're having a lot of, but we're also, we're also living and we don't focus a whole lot about this we're also living in a more emotionally toxic world, right? We, I mean, this world is a very, very different place where we have we have political extremes one way or the other. We have a lot of tension. We have we we had a pandemic that we just went through, which you know there was certainly a lot of controversy about even whether or not that was managed well. So, do you, do you think part of the problem that you now have in Maine is more people are getting sick, in part because there's more exposure, in part because there's more physical toxins, and in part because we live in a more emotionally toxic world? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point that you bring up. And I think, you know, gets overshadowed sometimes and, and is just as important, if not more important than some of the physical um, toxicities that we are exposed to is what we consume and the stress and fear that, you know, media and news, all of that can, can have on your body and the toll it can take. 
Well, so let's build this out a little bit, Carly. It's certainly not where I intended to go so early on, but you're you're finding we're finding you to be fascinating already. Let's talk about let's talk about the toxins associated with social media, right? I mean, your career has largely been built on the Instagram platform, right? I mean, you're you're an artist. Uh, Instagram is a beautiful platform. You have a beautiful Instagram, right? We share that with you offline. We we love your Instagram, right? But there is a downside to social media, right? And, and one of the things that I've talked with some guests about in the past is the um, the Netflix show, The Social Dilemma, right? And one of the things that Netflix was able to demonstrate in that documentary is that social media companies have been targeting uh, you know, young people and young women in particular. And it's really created a toxic environment for young women uh, in, in a number of different ways. So uh, you know, we on this podcast have observed that, you know, many more women are affected by Lyme disease than men. And I think there are a lot of different factors, some of which have to do with sexism in the medical system for sure. But what do you think about the toxic environment that's been created by social media and the impact that that's having generally on people getting sick from Lyme and more specifically about people who may be getting sick from Lyme disease as, as uh, young women? Yeah, I mean, another great question. I think you know, we have a choice for what we consume to some degree. And specifically when it comes to Instagram, I feel like my personal consumption is very thoughtful. And, and especially over the last couple of years when I've been, you know, on this Lyme journey, it's being really conscious about what I consume. But I know that, and I have friends, and I know a lot of other young women that definitely suffer from mental and emotional issues because of what they consume on social media. You know, this lack of their life isn't good enough. And they are seeing these beautiful vacations that people are going on. And it, I mean, Instagram's a highlight reel, right? It's, it's everybody's best moments to some degree. And if you're looking at it through that lens of you know, this is real life and this isn't just a highlight reel, then you can definitely be, especially the younger women growing up now, you can definitely, you know, have some pretty ill effects from that. So. Right. Think, and and yeah. what we're learning, what we're learning from, you know, some of the research that certainly has been explored by Netflix in the documentary is that, um, is that the social media companies are actually using tools to get people addicted to uh, right. these, these platforms. So some of it is the choices that you're making to consume, but yeah. some of it is you're, you know, you're a child, you're very young, you're, you know, you're not really making choices. And then they're using tools to get you addicted to, uh, you know, to a platform that is going to always cause you to feel inadequate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the infinite scroll, right? The, you know, you, you open up Instagram and before you know it, an hour or two hours could go by and that scroll is never ending and you're just going to keep, you get, you get sucked into it and just, the effects of staring at your phone, regardless of what you're even consuming, just staring at that phone for, you know, hours on end and the blue light. I mean, we could talk about that too. It's, it's not healthy. And, and I think that there's starting to be a lot more awareness about it with, you know, d documentaries like the social dilemma, um, a lot more people speaking up about it, but unless you're aware of kind of those tactics that they use to, <laughs> To manipulate you and and to get you um to follow and and subscribe to that then you can it can cause a lot of health 
effects. <laughs> so Carl, you hinted a little bit earlier that you, you seem to have this very nice childhood in Maine, uh, this rural community that you grew up in. So talk to us about what your childhood was like uh, and uh, talk about the, you know, what it is that you thought you were going to be doing to contribute to this world when you were thinking and dreaming about your future. Sure. I grew up in a really rural town in the mountains of Maine, western Maine, on a lake. Um, my parents run an art gallery and make jewelry for a living. So I grew up in a very idyllic, creative environment. I was always outdoors. I, you know, being in Maine, I was an avid skier in the winter and spent summers swimming in the lake, going to the ocean. And I think my graduating class in high school had about 58 people. So a really small community and very outdoor um, centric and and I, you know, I'm, I'm only an hour and a half from where I grew up. So it's nice to get back to that, that area. And, and it really hasn't changed much. So what was your, your vision for your future? You were growing up in this, you said this, uh, this artistic environment. Was it your vision that you would, you would join the family business and you'd become an artist? Or was that something that developed as time went on? You know, it's funny. I, I loved basketball as a kid <laughs> and I had dreams of being in the WNBA. I wanted to go to UConn and play college basketball there. Um, ended up going to school in Florida. And, you know, I think that that background of growing up in the creative environment planted a seed in me, but I didn't, I didn't know really from a young age what I would do. I, I'd love to travel always. We took family vacations. So that kind of travel bug and, and creative bug was planted. And, and then I went on to, you know, study communications and art in school and, and eventually um, found my way as a photographer. So now you, you said that you, you spent a lot of time outdoors and you came in contact with ticks. I want to build that out a little bit before we move forward. So um, how often were you bitten by ticks during your childhood? And when you were bitten by ticks, were there any steps that you were taught to take in order to prevent yourself from getting sick or were you not even aware that you could you could get sick from ticks? Yeah, I, you know, especially between May and June, those seem to be the peak months, especially where I grew up, um, bug season and ticks were more prevalent then. And I, and it seemed like anytime I, I took a walk in the backyard, my parents live on 11 acres and and have little trails throughout the property. And anytime I would come back into the house, there was almost always a tick, whether it was, you know, crawling on me, on my clothing. Um, it was very, yeah, like I said, very prevalent. Um, and there were a few instances where they definitely, you know, there was a, a biting tick that I would just pluck off and flush down the toilet. And that was kind of the protocol. I didn't know anything about Lyme disease. Um, and I never had any sort of acute reaction. I never had a bullseye rash. I never had any sort of infection at the site of the bite. Um, I just would pluck them off and keep going on with life. Claude, do you have any dogs or cats or any other companion animals that would be coming into the house? And if you did, do you recall having removed ticks from them? Yeah, we... Later in life, um, my parents had a dog, not as a child, and certainly remember ticks being on the dog when, when he would come in. 
right, so you're living in this time in this tick invested environment, uh, and either you're bringing ticks into the house because you have ticks biting you when you're going out, your parents are going out and ticks are coming on, your companion animal is coming in. So ticks are in and around your house all the time. You're getting bitten, but you, you never get sick, or at least to your knowledge. And uh, you're certainly not taking any prophylactic precautions to protect yourself from getting sick. And you're just going on with your life. So talk about, talk about when you first started to feel the symptoms of your tick disease. Yeah, I mean, I'd say around my junior year of college, I started to have odd symptoms from vertigo to abdominal pain. I mean, the list kind of went on and on and the symptoms kept piling up. Um, so for about 10 years, I really experienced an array of symptoms that seemed to be undiagnosable. Um, every doctor that I saw would tell me that I was young and healthy and I looked great and, and my test came back fine. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, but I knew, I knew something was wrong. I knew that, that I was feeling sensations in my body that I should not. <laughs> so talk to us about how you were feeling when the doctors are telling you there was nothing wrong with you. Cause I want to build that out. Uh, in some cases, people feel gaslit when they're going in and their bodies are telling them that they're sick, but their doctors are telling them that they're not, or at yeah. least the diagnostic tests are indicating that you're not. And therefore the doctors are saying you're not sick. Right. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling when the doctors are telling you there's nothing wrong with you? Medical gaslighting is so real. And as a young woman, I felt so confused and angry and upset with, you know, and, and disappointed and let down by the medical community that I grew up thinking always had my back um, or could fix problems that I had. So I was frustrated that every doctor I seemed to see um, would give me the same treatment. You're young, you look great, you're fine. It's just anxiety, it's all in your head. You know, we know that story and, and that's exactly what I went through. So we know from our offline conversation with you that you saw over 50 doctors between the time that you first got sick and your body was telling you there's something wrong with you and when you finally got diagnosed. So we're going to build that out in some detail. Uh, but did you see any difference in the way some doctors treated you versus the way other doctors treated you? Or were you just sort of getting the same line from everyone? You're young, you're healthy, your tests are not showing anything's wrong with you. Was there some diversity in the way that you were treated by the 50 doctors you saw before diagnosis? I would say that, you know, these 50 plus doctors that I saw all reacted very similar. It was a blanket kind of um, response from them that I was, I looked young, my tests were normal. There was nothing that they could diagnose me with. And so for that reason, just because of how they, you know, how the medical institution is educated, they didn't have anywhere to put me other than perhaps some sort of anxiety disorder, mental um, depression, things of that nature that don't have such clear diagnosis or blood work or whatever that is. Um, and it was interesting because especially in the, in the later five years of those 10 years, when I was really traveling internationally a lot, I saw doctors all over the world. I would have symptoms come up on a trip in Australia and, you know, go into the 
emergency care, which was free and always nice to get doctors care abroad. Um, but still the same thing, you know, oh, you're, you're just having a little bit of vertigo. You might be dehydrated, things like that. And it was just, I, I think part of the struggle for me was that I was never living in the same place. So that led to also visiting so many different doctors. I didn't have, you know, a couple doctors in Maine that I would just continually go to. It was uh, a mix of living all over the world and visiting doctors all over the world and getting the same answer from them. Um, I found a lot more success when I started to go more the naturopathic and holistic route um, with medical care and, and then really started targeting in and, and to the line literate doctor community. Okay, so before we get there, let's let's talk about your body signals. You you began this conversation by saying your body was telling you there was something wrong. And because your body was telling you there was something wrong, you were listening to the signal and you were going to doctors. Now, as as you were going to doctors and you went to a diversity of you went to a diverse set of doctors all over the world, and they were all telling you there was nothing wrong with you. Did, did you begin to doubt that your signal was correct? And did you start to ignore or even lose the signal that you were getting that was telling you there was something wrong with you? Absolutely. I, you know, would just chalk it up to, I would chalk up the symptoms to being, you know, related to jet lag or I ate something weird, or, you know, maybe I do have some anxiety and need to work on my mental health or yeah, I, when you start to get when you have over 50 doctors tell you you're fine, you, you can't not be affected by that and think that, you know, maybe these symptoms that you're experiencing are just all unrelated and all one-off little instances. So but I'm asking a different question, Carla. I'm not asking you whether or not you were explaining the symptoms. I'm asking yeah. you whether you lost the, the belief that your body was, was communicating with you, right? We've had some guests tell us, I, I don't know how to feel anymore. I, I, I don't have emotions anymore. I don't know how to define my emotions anymore. I have to look at emotion, emotion wheels to try to like essentially have this tool to interpret how they were feeling. Uh, did you yeah. lose any of that or did you just sort of explain away the symptoms but still receive the signal and know there was something wrong? I think the latter. I think I would explain the symptoms but continue going on. Um, I consider myself a pretty intuitive person and have always listened to my body. So I knew that something was wrong. So the gaslighting didn't put you in a position where you lost faith in the, in the intuitive part of you that was telling you there was something wrong, right? That didn't happen to you. It was just, and, and, and it sounds like you also didn't lose faith in the medical community because you went to over 50 doctors. So you kept going to, because we've had a lot of people step out of the medical community and say, I'm not going there anymore because it's too traumatic. So I'm going to stop doing that. That didn't happen to you either. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I, I think part of it was that I was traveling so much and I didn't have a primary care doctor that I could keep going to. So then I had 50 primary care doctors that all would start at ground zero again. So it was never like, you know, you're working with a few doctors in your neighborhood or your city and, and you just you just exhaust all avenues. Um, I was just kind of starting at ground zero with a new doctor in a new city 50 times over again. So, so Carly, do you think your nomadic life, which seems like it's really romantic and cool, right? I mean, it sounds like it's a life that we would all want to live, certainly for a portion of our lives. You think that nomadic life actually puts you in a position where 
your diagnostic journey was longer because you were starting over and you didn't give somebody the opportunity to really dig in with you and figure out what was wrong with you. I think that plays a part in it. I think also the vagueness of my symptoms that would come and go was challenging. And then ultimately when my symptoms all came to a head was when I, you know, I hit rock bottom and I had to, I had to do something. So when was that? When did you finally crash? I would say May last year, May of 2022. So, so you have 10 years of, of symptoms. You have 10 years of visiting with doctors, 10 years of, of everyone telling you that you're okay. And, and you just continue to, you know, live this hard charging, um, really cool artistic experience until you can't anymore. Yeah, I mean, I was burned out. I was exhausted. I was traveling nonstop. I was in a different hotel or Airbnb every week, it seemed like, for nearly five years. That's exhausting. I had no routine. <laughs> well, but it's, it also sounds like it also sounds like you became chronically ill because not that you were burned out, but that you're, you know, you were engaging in so many behaviors that were immuno suppressive travel, for example, we know, I mean, we, yeah. we know what happens with, with pilots and, 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 and stewards and stewardesses who, who are unfortunately, um, you know, getting sick all the time because, you know, flight is immunosuppressive, right? So mm -hmm. um, the, you know, it just got to the point where your disease became chronic, right? Yeah. But you still didn't have a diagnosis, right? I mean, it, it, you, you still didn't have a diagnosis. So, you, you know, all the signs were there, all the symptoms were there, uh, all the medical care was available to you. You had a diversity of doctors from all over the world looking at you and no one could figure it out. And now you crash. So how do you get from crash to diagnosis? It wasn't easy. It wasn't a quick process. I... Believe, and it was May of 2021. Sorry, I think I said May 2022. So not this recent past May, but the, you know, this time last year. And my grandmother of all people, I'm very close with her. And she picked up a book, Allie Hilfiger's. Um, me. Yeah. Allie Hilfiger's testimonial or book. And she read through it and was fascinated with her story. And she's known about my health conditions on and off for years. And she said, Carly, you should really read this book. And I was, you know, in such a low place that even picking up a book sounded like a daunting task. And, and I remember she was pretty persistent. And I ended up reading Allie's story. And every single doctor that Allie mentioned in that book and healing method that she recommended, I started becoming, you know, this research fanatic, like you mentioned earlier offline, I ordered every book I could about Lyme disease. I just inundated myself with information about it and it just clicked. And I was like, well, no shit. <laughs> this is, this is what it is. No wonder the doctors haven't figured it out. And I pretty much self diagnosed myself at that point. And then it was just getting a, a test or getting a, a doctor to come on board with that. And I didn't, I didn't want to have Lyme disease, but I was just, you know, this, the signature symptoms, everything was just spot on. And then 
I did so, eventually. Wait a minute, Carly, I have to challenge you for a minute, right? Yeah. So, so you know, one of the things we talk about on this podcast is, um, is how often people are diagnosed by people outside of the medical community, right? It, it happens more times than I, quite frankly. Um, and then people bring their, their thoughts about their diagnosis to doctors who are open to having a healthy relationship with you. And, and, and in many cases, you get diagnosed. We generally call that sister science or bro science. I, I, I pulled that out of the gym experience where I, when I was a young man, I'd go to the gym and somebody would come over and tell me, hey, bro, you're not, you're not benching correctly. You know, that, that sort of whole bro science thing. But I think we actually have a new name for this. It's going to be called grandma science, right? Like because, because you were actually not, you didn't self-diagnose. You were diagnosed by your grandmother, right? Your grandmother was searching for some answer to what this entire medical community from around the world was not able to discover. And your grandmother saw parallels in your illness and your symptoms and the brilliant Allie Hilfing, who, by the way, we interviewed on this podcast. She's brilliant. That book was brilliant, but she is just, I mean, I'm telling you, an absolute, uh, again, somebody you'd love because of your artistic uh, abilities as well, but just a brilliant woman. But you're, you're, you, you had these parallel journeys and, and your grandmother saw that, right? So you were actually diagnosed by your grandmother. You didn't self-diagnose. I have to challenge you on that. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I would agree with that. <laughs> all right. So now grandma helps you to get diagnosed. You read all of the books on Lyme disease, but you now have to find a practitioner, right? You, you're, you're, taking an, you're taking some really healthy steps. And we see these patterns on this podcast where someone has a family member who helps them or a friend helps them to, uh, to have this epiphany that they may have uh, an illness. They start to do their own research as best they can, depending on their cognitive challenges, but they get through this challenge where we're now starting to be alerted to the possibility. Your reticular activation system is now showing you more and more about Lyme disease. You're getting more and more information about Lyme disease. You're now taking responsibility for your health. You're taking responsibility for your diagnosis. So this is all very positive because this is what we see with people who are healing from Lyme disease. But you still need a practitioner, right? You can't do this on your own. And, and that's yeah. something we emphasize on this podcast. Yeah, most doctors suck. Yeah, most doctors don't really do a great job, you know, in at the diagnostic phase. But we really need doctors, right? We shouldn't be doing this on our own. We need to have some support from the medical community. There's a lot of things that they do really well. So did you do that? Did you did you find now a practitioner despite being disappointed by 50 others? I, I found a few and it, it took me a little while because I, I took all the information I had and I would present it to various primary care doctors that I sought out and said, all right, I, I need to see an infectious disease doctor. I need to see a Lyme literate doctor. And to many of them, they, they didn't understand because again, I didn't have concrete blood work or tests that they, that they took. And so then I started to research um, through the ILADS uh, community. Yep. Yep. I started looking up Lyme literate doctors in Maine and found a few. I remember I even found a lot of them were not taking new patients. It was six plus months before they could see me. And I was at the peak of my worst symptoms I'd ever experienced. So I had to start taking you know, measures very quickly. Um, I saw, I started, you know, going on Instagram. I spend a lot of time on Instagram seeing, you know, what types of practitioners are, are out there. And I actually worked with a few different um, holistic practitioners that I had found on Instagram and then finally landed 
with a Lyme literate naturopath doctor um, here locally in, in um, Scarborough, Maine, and have been working with him since um, September, so almost a full year. So how did now the Lyme literate doctor treat you differently than the other 50 doctors you worked with before that? Oh my gosh. I was like, I finally was heard. I finally was understood. I felt like I wasn't crazy anymore. I was, I just felt heard. <laughs> it's the best feeling. It's, I, yeah, get excited thinking about it because it took so long. <laughs> so Carly, I just want to highlight another couple of things that we, again, successful patterns that we see on this, on this podcast, right? So you now enter into the community right? You become a member of the community. You're now reaching out to other folks who had been on the journey and you're now getting support from people in the community. You find the leading Lyme disease organization in the world. You start to gather information from them, again, shortcuts, but you're looking for a practitioner and now you find a practitioner in close proximity to where you are. And now everything opens up to you, right? The the, the world of, 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 of diagnosis opens up to you. Now talk to us about how you were finally diagnosed with Lyme disease. Yeah, so I found this amazing doctor, and honestly, I, I mean, it, this is a this is kind of a tricky thing because I think sometimes when you walk into a Lyme literate doctor's office, you're going to be diagnosed with Lyme. It's like you walk into a store that only sells watermelon, you're going to buy a watermelon. So I want to preface that a little bit, um, but regardless of that, I you know, remember filling out a questionnaire um, about my symptoms that it was kind of like a point rated system where if you had X amount of points, it might lead you towards this um, diet. Carly, was this the Dr. Horowitz test, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what it was called. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I remember getting the results back from that. And it was pretty obvious that I was dealing with Lyme and several other co-infections. I then went on to have bioresonance testing done, um, which also had very similar, actually identical results from, from that. And I think at some point I had also done a, this was maybe before both of those, I had done um, the Western blot test. Um, so those were really the diagnostic tools that I, that I went and used. Carla, were you positive on the Western blot for Lyme disease? I was in the equivocal range. There were some bands, but not all bands. Um, per CDC guidelines, I was negative, but per the, I guess they call it the equivocal range or outside, I forget the exact terminology, but there was some indication that I could have some of the, the Lyme proteins or proteins in my system. But I want to talk more about this, Carly, because I think the controversy over a Lyme diagnosis is very damaging to many people. In fact, I have a very good friend who's been diagnosed with Lyme for many years, and she's been making progress and healing from late stage Lyme and tick-borne illnesses. But still to this day, she questions whether or not she actually has Lyme disease, right? Yeah. She goes, maybe it's something else because we have all this doubt from all of these, these other sources that are coming at us, right? you know, do the doctors don't believe in chronic Lyme, et cetera. So here you are, Dr. Horowitz, the leader in the Lyme community has this, this MSIDS, this multiple systemic infectious disease, you know, system uh, um, test, right? 
and you are off the charts. You, you test positive for bioresonance. You're off the charts. You're equivocal for Western blot, but yet you're, you're still prefacing that on this podcast by saying, well, I went to a lot of literary doctors, so take it with a grain of salt. But I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a good or a bad thing to share with the community as a disclaimer? Because in my case, I know I questioned whether or not I still have Lyme after I was given four weeks of antibiotics. I was told I was cured. I clearly wasn't, right? So what are your thoughts on that? That controversy and, yeah. and the games we play with ourselves in our own minds to determine if we really have Lyme or not? That's so hard. I, you know, in some ways, I don't want to preface it because I don't want people to doubt it. And if all other signs are clearly indicating that there's, you know, this infection in, in Lyme or Lyme co-infections in your body, then, then start treating it if you have symptoms. What I, maybe the reason that I do preface it is that I do think sometimes people can identify too much with their sickness to a point where their mental health is never able to overcome it. So maybe that's where I'm coming at it from. Like, and maybe it's because I'm further along in my journey. I, I don't necessarily want to always identify as I'm sick. I have Lyme disease. I want to be able to say I'm hundred percent healed. I'm, I'm not, I still have symptoms, but maybe that's more where I'm coming at it from. It makes sense, Carly. And I'm, I'm only having this sort of debate with you because personally I have gone and been through this and I know many people have, right? And I think yeah. it's why we hear so many different names for it. Chronic Lyme disease, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. We talked about Harwitz's term, the multiple systemic infectious disease syndrome, right? We, we talked about, we've heard um, so many other, other terms. Like with COVID, we have long COVID, we have COVID long haulers, right? And regardless, you are sick and you deserve health that's yeah. a basic human right. So whether it's chronic Lyme disease or whether it's chronic Bartonella or whether it's whatever it may be, yeah. many, of these, many of these things have overlapping symptoms. And I think you're right about the identity piece. If you say I'm chronically ill and you accept that, you may not take steps forward to actually start to improve your health, I think is your argument, Carly, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I think your point too of, you know, Lyme disease is so complex. It's not I don't think it boils down to one bacteria Borrelia that's causing all these symptoms. And so I think it's this identity crisis with the name itself that is challenging. And, and what, like you said, whether it's fibromyalgia, all these different things all have such, you know, um, um, overlapping symptoms. And now we're seeing even with COVID this long haul COVID is having a lot of very similar um, symptoms too. So it, I think it's just the name Lyme disease and being diagnosed with Lyme disease feels sometimes like, well, it's so much more than just this one name Lyme disease. There's so many things going on. For sure. And myself, I was treated for Lyme and other co-infections, but never for Babesia, which I had and didn't know I had. And that kept me sick as well. So here I am identifying with chronic Lyme. Right. And if we're focusing on Borrelia burgdorferi, that probably was a part of the picture still after inadequate treatment, but I think Babesia was probably more of the picture for me at that point. So semantic wise, I agree. And I think we're saying the same thing here that really, if you're not feeling well, whether it's, you know, Borrelia burgdorferi, whether it's Babesia, whether it's reactivated Epstein-Barr virus, which we're seeing in a lot of these cases of long COVID, right? And even chronic Lyme patients, it's reactivated viruses that are keeping people sick. And it all comes down to what you pivoted to, and I know we're going to get to Carly, is this whole body natural restoration of health, which is going to get yeah. you to where you need to be. So 
Uh, I, I just wanted to focus on that. I'm sorry, I know it kind of took us off to the side here about this debate about, you know, chronic Lyme and do you really have it or is it real, right? And, and the labels, but I think that's important because many people are stuck with that and will not move forward because they question their illness, right? And then they stay in this place of, of really disease, right? Yeah. So talk to us about, you finally get your, your diagnosis. You have the bioresonance, you have the Harvard's Emerson's questionnaire and the equivocal Western blot. What is your Lyme literate medical doctor, this naturopathic doctor you found, what is her first course of treatment for you for your disease? Sure, I think we really started with like foundational um, protocol, making sure that my, um, well really in the beginning to calming down my nervous system and making sure I wasn't living in this fight or flight mode. Um, that was one of the first things we started working on. And, and a majority of, of the protocol was all herbal uh, treatment with some various other um, things added in, but really starting with the nervous system, making sure that my um, detox pathways are open, that I'm sweating, that I'm using the bathroom regularly, all of these things, because before you start using any sort of antimicrobials and start killing off bacteria, viruses, parasites in your system, you want to make sure you're able to, to detox them properly. Um, so that was really where we started. And this is very much in line with the naturopathic way of addressing chronic Lyme disease. And it's more holistic approach that addresses the not just Lyme disease component we talked about, right? And this is, I think, a really core foundation approach to restoring health. So talk to us about, before we get into the antimicrobials and the kill, you mentioned first you had to address your nervous system because so many of us are stuck in fight or flight all the time with chronic Lyme disease. And then you had to address your detox pathways, opening up your ability to sweat and being able to go to the bathroom regularly, which are really key. And many people don't realize until you get into this world, that's really important to be able to detox and be able to not have a toxic environment in your body filled with all the die off of the bacteria, right? So what were you doing specifically with herbals? Can you give us some ideas of either brand names or specific herbs that you were using first with your nervous system? Because I know so many of us listening are going to say, Carly, how did you get out of fight or flight? Or what did you do to help fight or flight? That's the first question I want to ask you. Yeah, great question. Um, as far as herbs go, a lot of adaptogens, um, ashwagandha, reishi mushroom, um, things in that in that kind of adaptogen realm were really helpful and soothing to me. Um, I was taking um, lavella, which is a essential oil, lavender oil supplement, um, also very soothing to my nervous system. Outside of the um, herbal treatment. I was also doing some homeopathic, um, taking the Picana Delectra and Picana, I think it's called Calm, um, homeopathic treatments. And beyond that, practicing daily meditation, grounding, um, doing PEMF therapy, where it's pulsed, pulsed electromagnetic frequencies that basically mimic the earth's like grounding energy. So you would have the same effect if you go and lay down on the ground somewhere. Um, so practicing that um, and making sure that I was getting enough sleep. So making sure that I'm not on my phone at night, being really cognizant of, you know, how much blue light I'm taking in, especially after the sun goes down, um, getting direct sunlight first thing in the morning, 
trying to watch sunrise and sunset and getting my circadian rhythm back um, in flow. I feel like there's so many things that I'm probably forgetting, but. Well, there's so many things, uh, Carl, that I'd like to follow up on on this. So this is a good segue. Talk to us first about the essential oils, because we've had people come on and tell us that they've been anxious to take essential oils and ingest them, right? Oh, I'll put them in a diffuser. Oh, I'll apply them on my skin. But it sounds like you were ingesting lavender essential oils and that was helping you with your nervous system. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was, I was also diffusing and, and topically using essential oils, um, but also ingesting um, capsules of the lavender oil. And that was helping you calm your nervous system and, and get to a more of a state of relax, right? Absolutely. I noticed if I didn't do it one day, I would notice. It was very, um, pretty profound, the effects that I noticed for me. Were you making these capsules or were you buying them from your naturopath? How were you getting these capsules of the essential oils, the, the lavender specifically? Yeah, the brand I took was called Lavella. Um, and this was through my naturopathic doctor. Um, I, um, there might be another name associated with it too. But yeah, they, they were purchased. And give us an idea of some of the benefits you were receiving from topical and diffused essential oils too. Just to, I think, you know, anxiety was always a big um, symptom that I have and something that you'll experience if your body is constantly in fight or flight. And so one of, you know, there's this, this practice that I do when I'm in this state of anxiety and it, I call it the five, four, three, two, one. And you start with, you know, naming five things you see, and then four things you hear, three things you smell. So smell, I bring that up because, and then two things you taste and one thing um, you feel. And, and these exercises, these sensory exercises help take your mind out of this fight or flight mode and ground you and bring you into the present moment. And the sense of smell and essential oils was very powerful for me and specific essential oils that are known to really kind of trigger a state of relax relaxation like lavender oil were very powerful to me. Carla, let's also talk about the circadian rhythm, right? Because we've talked about you, you, you mentioned getting up in the morning and having direct sunlight exposure first thing and then watching the sunset and, and allowing that almost as a tool to reset your body for sleep. And so many in the chronic Lyme community tell us that they're up all night and they sleep all day, right? So is this a good tool for you that you felt helped you get back into a normal rhythm of sleep? Meaning by getting direct sunlight exposure in the morning and watching the sun go down at night was doing something to you physically and inside your body to help your body adjust to the normal time clock. Absolutely. And, and there's definitely science behind it. You know, the, and I, won't be able to speak to the exact, you know, terminology of it all, but the light therapy is real. And there's different, as a photographer, I understand, you know, light pretty well. And, and there's different infrared spectrums and light spectrums that when our body is exposed to them, everybody hears about infrared light and the healing benefits that that has, but there's other light spectrums that you're exposed to specifically during the sunrise and sunset time that can trigger your body to do multiple things, whether it's, you know, triggering your body, body to start producing melatonin or different hormones. And then if you obviously have more melatonin in your system, you're going to sleep better. And so there's this whole science behind 
you know, why we as humans need to have that sunlight therapy and specific times of day, um, why those specific times of day are so important. And in addition to watching the sun go down and helping with melatonin and helping with sleep and helping with getting your body going in the morning by watching this, you know, the sunrise, the sunlight in general is really good because it helps strengthen our mitochondria, the powerhouse of ourselves, which promote healing, right? So there's so many benefits of being out in nature. I mean, never mind getting out of a potential moldy environment, getting out of an environment where there's potentially toxins or just, you know, non-clean air. You're being out in, in nature is so therapeutic in itself in addition to the mitochondria, in addition to helping with, you know, these sleep hormones like, like melatonin to help you sleep, right? So it seems so simple, but I think these are great techniques that I've been implementing this summer specifically that have been really, really helpful in my own sleep patterns and my own health. So I wanted to focus on that a little bit there. And in regards to light, I mean, obviously being a photographer, Carly, right? I've always been fascinated by blue light. And these glasses are my first set of glasses I've had for about a year that have blue light filters in them. Yeah. And from what I understand, I'm, I'm, probably going to be wrong and feel free to correct me. They help when I'm on and I'm on um, again, I'm in technology fields. So I have I have two screens in front of me at work. I have I have a ton of screens. I have phones, tablets. They help you when you're on devices, not get stimulated by the light. So can you just give us an idea? What is blue light and why is it helpful to have a blue light filter like I do in my in my prescription glasses that I have? Yeah, absolutely. And well, blue light is mostly produced during the middle part of the day. And if you go out and it's not a bad thing. We, you know, we need blue light too. And if you go out in the middle of the day and get sun, you're more exposed to that. And that triggers your body to be more awake. And so if you are on your computer all this time and constantly exposed to that blue light, you're going to be more wired. And so by wearing these blue light filter, I mean, mine are within reach too. I am always wearing my, my blue light, uh, blue block glasses as well. When I'm on on my devices. And I always put my phone in, in night mode at night. I even have another filter that turns the whole screen red. Um, if it's after sunset, because it, yeah, I think your question was, why are we, why are we doing this? But that blue light, um, will just trigger that kind of awakeness and wiredness. So especially if you're up late at night on your phone or working, you know, in, in the dark and your screen's right in front of you, that's gonna, gonna make you more wired and not sleep well. <laughs> So one more way to help us sleep, right? The whole, whole circadian rhythm thing with the, you know, sun in the morning, sun at night, blue light, right? I mean, they're all, these are all tips and tricks to help reset a chronic Lyme patient's sleep schedule. I, I think most of us have struggled with that pretty significantly with our sleep. Either A, we're not sleeping at all, or B, we're sleeping during the day and not at night, right? So this yeah. is really helpful. And the other thing I want to I want to pick on Rich a little bit here also, because uh, I know our, nobody can see Rich, but I, I, he's, he's now smiling. And he was a big advocate of grounding. And, you know, we learned about it pretty heavily last year on the podcast last summer, Rich goes out and says, I'm going to ground because our podcast guest told us how wonderful it is. And what happens, Carly gets bit by a tick, right? <laughs> so, you know, obviously within reason, you have to be doing tick checks and using tick, you know, tick prevention techniques. And I put that off to the side more than just a bust Rich's chops over there, right? But give us an idea, because you talked about grounding and PEMF, and I want to focus a little bit more on those two. It just seems so odd. When I first heard it, I'm like, this is just such crap. I'm being honest. But now I'm a believer, right? But it, at first, yeah. I'm like, this is just stupid. This is like, woo, woo. I don't believe it. And I now, now I'm on I'm on the, the grounding side. But just walking outside in your with bare feet on the soil can help you be more calm and relaxed and regulate your nervous system. Give us an idea as to how helpful it's been in your journey and maybe give us some, you know, explanation as to how it actually works, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the science behind it, it goes into kind of frequency and energy, which we are all energetic beings. We're all exposed to energy in so many different forms. And the earth's natural grounding frequency is extremely healing to our bodies, especially if we're in this fight or flight mode. And for me, I, you know, I also studied a lot of Ayurvedic therapy and I was always flying. I was always on an airplane. And so naturally I was ungrounded and I was, you know, in this, I bring up Ayurveda because there's different dosha types and you can kind of, um, study, you know, these different, these different sensations. And and anyways, I'm not going to go down that, that hole, but my point about grounding, I think that, you know, it's such a simple thing to walk barefoot outside. And I was kind of at a point where, you know, there's so many, like you said, these things can seem a little woo woo and out there. And how many of these different things am I going to try? And when you're so sick, you'll try anything. And so I would try things. And if they made me feel good, I would keep doing it. And that's really, whether there was science behind it or not, I, you know, with grounding, there is science behind it, but it just made me feel better. And that is the bottom line of why I, why I started doing it and why I continue to do it. And Carly, when you say you felt better from grounding, you mean you felt more relaxed? You know, give us an idea of exactly how it made you feel more relaxed and calm, I believe, correct? Yeah, absolutely. More relaxed, more calm. Just, I'm trying to think of some specific, you know, descriptors, but so much of it is just this feeling in, inside your body. It's hard to put into words, but yeah, I would say, yeah, relaxed and calm. And so much of this is trial and error where you were, you were trying things, listening to your body signals. They work. I'm going to keep doing it or it doesn't work. and I'm not going to do it. And that's how you evaluated what works and doesn't work to share with us on this podcast. So I appreciate you sharing that, that background, but PEMF is another thing I have a question about because I understand it's frequency therapy and I understand their products like the amp coil out there. We've interviewed some people now who are executives at amp coil. And from what I understand, amp coil not only is a frequency therapy to help sort of round, I guess, right, the, the body, but it's also used to match the frequency of various bacteria like Lyme to kill it. So when you were using PEMF, was that, was that strictly from a nervous system grounding standpoint, or was that sort of like a multi-pronged tool where it was helping kill and also help you ground at the same time? I, I don't know enough about PEMF to fully understand how that worked for you. Yeah, for me, I, I have... Um... It's a mat that I lie on. It's the company that makes it's called Higher Dose, and it's uh, more specifically for grounding, not this um, idea of frequencies being able to kill off pathogens. But I have heard about that and, and looked into that as well. I haven't tried that, but the the PEMF mat that I have is um, specific frequencies for grounding and calming nervous system. Can you say the name of the company again, in case our listeners want to explore that? The company is Higher Dose. Thank you. So I know we're just still in the nervous system and we have so much to talk about still, but now you mentioned, obviously, in addition, your detox was so important. And I mean, I guess there's, there's no such thing as TMI when it comes to Lyme disease in general, but looking back, I mean, sometimes I was going to the bathroom once a week, Carly. Right. And now I know like that's really bad, especially when I was on IV antibiotics and, and doing treatment. If I'm going to the bathroom once a week, my detox pathways are not open. I'm not flushing out the toxins in my body. Something is stagnant, right. Just to keep it at a, at a simple level. 
And beyond that, you need to be able to sweat. And if you have a trouble sweat, then that's an indicator too that you're not really detoxing as well as you should. So what were your issues detoxing prior to starting the herbals? Were you not going to the bathroom enough? Were you not sweating? Give us some more specifics there. And then what herbs specifically were you using with your naturopathic doctor to overcome those hurdles? Yeah, you know, I I didn't have, I, I had very regular bowel movements and I was a sweaty person. I <laughs> didn't necessarily have specific problems with that. It was more the idea that let's really make sure that we are, these pathways are open and, and, um, before we start going in and doing any sort of heavy, um, killing off of, of different things. And, and it was also, and it still is a very kind of complementary um, therapy that I use these different, um, uh, detox things such as my infrared sauna, um, sitting in that once a day, I think it's very complementary to any sort of, um, detox that you're doing is making sure you're, you're doing that. So some specifics. Yeah. I have an infrared sauna that I sit in, um, by Therisage. Um, it's like a little black box that zips up around me. My head stays out. So I don't get really hot in there. And, um, there's red light, infrared light panels inside that expose me to the, the infrared light. And I have never sweat more than when I sit in that. So I love my infrared sauna. <laughs> Carly, how do you feel after using your sauna? Was there a time where you maybe used it too aggressively and you had a Herxheimer reaction or, you know, what's the balance there as far as utilizing it for benefit versus maybe having a flare? Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely had to learn what my body could handle and where I'm at now, I is so different from a year ago. I could barely even sit in a hot bath for five minutes without some sort of Herxheimer reaction happening. So slowly building myself up and, and I had to start really slow. And I found out the hard way when I, you know, thought I could just take a hot bath or, or sit in my new sauna that I got for 20 minutes, you know, I paid the price and, and had to pair things back. <laughs> so time frame wise, you got you were diagnosed and started treating with your naturopathic doctor May of last year. So a little over a year ago. You started with the nervous system and the detox stuff, right? So before we get into the kill, about how long were you doing the nervous system and the detox stuff? Was was that in parallel or was that sequential, those two steps? I didn't really start any heavy um antimicrobials for about four months, um, May, June, July, August. Yeah. Until September. So May, I really started some foundational stuff four months later. And, you know, prior to May, I was, I was trying things here and there that I had read online, um, you know, taking a little bit of cat's claw supplements or things of that nature, but I really didn't get organized until, until May. And then you know, backtrack and start with foundational. And then four months later, my body was ready to, to start some antimicrobials. And with the foundational stuff, with the detoxing and the nervous system, were you feeling any better at all? Were you, were, no, were, no. were there any herxes? Like, you know, no. Okay. So the, the, answer, the short answer is no, you were sort of in the same place. I felt worse for, for a little while, um, which is natural um, when your body you know, a big part of this foundational stuff too is diet. So removing for me, gluten, dairy, sugar, all these things we know can be anti-inflammatory. Um, 
which will cause, you know, if you're, if you're used to having that, those things will feed those pathogens in your body. So when you remove it, it's going to cause some natural die off to happen. Hence some of these more uncomfortable symptoms flaring. Um, so, yeah. So you think that your diet and your detoxing and your nervous system were promoting these various pathogens to just replicate and go to town in your body. But as you were tightening up your nervous system and you were detoxing better and you were tightening up your diet, these pathogens weren't getting what they needed to live or replicate. And as they were dying, you were becoming toxic and you were feeling the effects of that, I think is what you're saying, right? Absolutely. Yep. So now we're in September and you're starting to get into the antimicrobial side of things or the kill side of a treatment protocol. What were you, what was your approach with your naturopathic doctor to start killing the various pathogens that were in your body? Yeah, well, I had several um, co-infections, Babesia, Bartonella, Ehrlichia, uh, Tularemia. There, there were countless other co-infections that were identified um, among um, not just these bacteria, but also viruses that had been reactivated in my system, parasites, molds. So figuring out what to go after first um, was kind of where we started. And, and a lot of that was um, parasite cleansing, um, making sure that, that we're clearing out parasites, which are known to harbor Lyme bacteria, mold, uh, chemicals, heavy metals, all these things. So, so that was, um, one of the first places we started was, you know, mold, parasite, viruses, and then moving on to the Lyme bacteria. So let's focus. You had, it was mold, parasites, viruses, and, bac and bacteria, right? You said? Yeah. Parasites, viruses, and bacteria. Okay. So what were you doing first to address the mold? Can you give us specific products, you know, herbs, et cetera, you were using? Yeah. The, the mold, I really, um, a lot of people have in the Lyme community, very severe mold exposure. I did not, but I had some, and I knew that there was some of that going on in my system. I grew up in a really old house in Maine, um, and had several other kind of exposures to mold. Um, so a lot of my mold detox came through the sauna and sweating out and taking uh, binders. I was taking a specific binder called Biotoxin Binder by a company called Cellcore. Um, and another kind of big mold player that we hear a lot in the slime community is Candida. So a lot of that is diet related. Um, and, and you can really, I think, go after mold if you don't have a, a really severe problem with those kind of efforts alone. And then on to the parasites, it sounds like parasites are pretty big for you as well. I, I think we're talking about intestinal GI parasites. Are, are we talking more like bloodborne parasites like Babesia? Are we talking, you know, brain parasites or more GI parasites? Are we, we focusing on for your specific you know, example here? Yeah, it's a mix of um, intracellular parasites and, and um, you know, these gut-borne ones. Like I said, too, I was living all over the world. I spent a lot of time um, in, you know, Southeast Asia, India, Mexico, these places where we, in parts of Africa, where we think um, parasites are more of an issue, which I mean, parasites could be a whole podcast in itself, um, but because they are just as prevalent here in the U.S. as well, which is uh, a lot of people don't understand, but I knew that my body, I had been sick several times abroad. I knew that I had some sort of parasite problem going on, um, plus with some of the blood work and, and other testing. 
So we went after we went after parasites with a lot of um, antimicrobials, antiparasitic herbs. Um, which, funny to say, a lot of them are the same herbs that that a lot of people will take for uh, Lyme treatment as well. So there was a lot of overlap with some of those. Carla, can you give us some specific names of herbs or products you use for the parasites? Yeah, the ones that come to mind, uh, wormwood, which the name is kind of ironic there. Um, uh, uh, black walnut hole is another big antiparasitic herb. Um, there's so many, I'm blanking, but but those two for sure come to mind. Um, pumpkin seeds, there's something in pumpkin seeds that, that really helps with parasites. Um, black clove is another one, um, herbal treatment for parasites. And, you know, there's, parasite cleansing is very common in, a lot of other countries around the world. And when you start, like I said earlier, I was getting into Ayurveda and learning a lot about the diet and the herbs that they used to cook with. And a lot of these herbs that are in this Indian cuisine is antiparasitic. So that I found fascinating as well. So Carly, in, in the States here, you know, as well, I guess across the world, we hear a lot of people do parasite cleanses. And we often hear, you know, what's an appropriate amount of time to do a cleanse? Some people are using antiparasitic cell core products for, you know, one to five plus years, and they're constantly passing parasites. I mean, in your view, what is an appropriate time frame for a parasite cleanse? And if it's, if you're still passing parasites, is that a problem? Meaning there's something deeper, like, what are your thoughts on that? Because that's something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. When, you know, what's an appropriate time frame? And if you're, if you're still coming out and never ending, and you have a ton of them passing in your stool, is there something deeper to look at? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's a great question. I think that there is a point where, you know, we are biological beings. We are going to live in harmony with these other things in our body. You're not going to get rid of every little pathogen in your, in your body. That's not the goal. The goal is to, you know, listen to your symptoms and see what's relieving. And, and if the parasite cleansing is helping to relieve some of the symptoms, um, then, then it's helpful and it's working. But if, if they keep coming back, then we, I think you need to go deeper into what is the root cause and what is, is there an environment in your body that is ideal for these pathogens to harbor and, and ask yourself that and look at, you know, look at your diet, look what you're eating. Um, but I don't think you're going to get rid of every single bug in your body. <laughs> For sure. And I mean, I think some of us, you know, studies have been done that shown Lyme will persist even in people that are in remission. It'll just be dormant in various parts of their body. Right. And we've seen that in autopsy. So I think that's something that we've been able to prove out. But I guess what I'm thinking of is we we, we talk about the antibiotic loop sometimes on this podcast, meaning people will go on oral doxycycline or some sort of oral antibiotic. They feel a little bit better. They go off and they feel really bad again. Right. And they go, and Allie Hilfiger did this in her, in her book. She talks about it. And on, on, on this podcast where she would do various treatments, she'd get better and then she'd be really bad again. She'd go back on treatment. She'd feel a little bit better. She'd go off treatment and get really bad again. And for her, it was many, many years. So whether it's an antibiotic treatment that's causing you to be in this loop or a parasite treatment where you're dependent on that antibiotic or that antiparasitic protocol to be symptom-free and feel good, there's probably something deeper, I think, is where I'm coming from, right? I think you're, you're agreeing yeah. that 
Like, you know, if, I, if I'm parasite cleansing for six months and I'm still passing the same amount of parasites as I was on day one, maybe there's something else in my body that's promoting an environment where these parasites are thriving. And I need to go look at that. And then if I tackle that on, maybe then I can have a successful parasite protocol where I'm not going to just have these continuous parasites coming out regardless of you know how long I'm doing it for. Yeah, I would agree with that. So for you, it sounds like you made some progress though. And, and, and at the end of this parasite cleanse, you were seeing less parasites come out of your stool and you felt like you had achieved the goal of reducing the parasitic load in your body. Yeah, I, you know, I definitely witnessed parasites coming out of my body and it, I kind of lessened, I, I wasn't doing heavy parasite. I, I feel like if I kept doing heavy parasite cleansing, I probably would have continued to have parasites detox from my system, but it got to a point where I just felt like I needed, okay, I've, I've checked that off. Now let's go on to the next thing is kind of how my story was, but you brought up that point, like, well, I could have just kept doing it for six months, but it seemed like if I was following this kind of, you know, protocol of addressing parasites, mold, bacteria, and, and viruses and toxins that I felt like I had done enough of the parasite to move on to the next thing is kind of how it worked with me. And how long were you treating the parasites for before you moved on to the viruses? I did parasite cleansing for a couple of months, heavy. And then, like I said, a lot of the herbal stuff is crosses over that, you know, targets Lyme. So I feel like I'm still doing parasite, you know, cleansing, just not as heavy as I was early on. It's very interesting to hear that because, you know, Rich and I are huge fans of Dr. Rolls and his restore kit. I take it. Rich takes it. And when we interviewed him last, we asked, you know, hey, look, does your restore kit have anything that's that's anti-parasitic? And he goes, yeah, you know, there's a lot. And he, and he cited a lot of the ingredients that are good for parasites. I think there is an overlap. And sometimes we think it's just parasites or just Lyme, but there is an overlap between many herbs that will treat Lyme and parasites. So that's it's a good point to share with our listeners. Now, when it comes to viruses, though, Carly, we what viruses were you diagnosed with? I mean, obviously we're never going to know what exactly is going on in our body and this whole body approach is best, but what were you able to find out through testing or clinical diagnosis that you had these viruses, you know, wreaking havoc in your body? Mm -hmm. I had some reactivated, um, shingles, H H V S. Um, I think two and one of, of the, of that virus. I had some reactivated EBV um, going on in my system. Those were the two, yeah, the two main ones. And what herbs were you using for the viruses at this point? Yeah, I, I don't know the specific ones off the top of my head right now. Um, but again, a lot of it was crossover. A lot of the same anti-parasitic, antibacterial, antiviral, a lot of the herbs um, crossover. And I know from your pre-interview questionnaire, you've used a lot of the Byron White products. So is that yeah. what you were using all this time is a lot of the Byron White stuff? Yeah, the Byron White, um, I've used three of his different formulas um, in the last four months, started using some of those. Um, prior to that, a lot of other things like Japanese knotweed, cryptoleptic, like a lot of the Dr. Rawls herbs that he brings up and that are in his um, protocol too. Um, 
are ones that my my doctor was recommending. So so obviously the virus is a lot of overlap. You're using things like cryptolepis, et cetera. And now you're onto the, the bacteria in the Lyme. So that's when you we pivot over to the Byron White stuff. Can you tell us specifically which of the Byron White products you were using? And if, you know, I know, I know it's only been four months, but were they effective for you? Yeah, I started with, I think, one drop because they're very potent, these uh, tinctures of the AP and the ABART. And I would work myself, the goal is to work yourself up to 20 drops um, twice a day was my my protocol, um, which I did eventually reach. And, and the reason you start so slow is to see, you know, how your body's reacting to it. Are you having any sort of detox Herxheimer reaction? Do you need to pair back? Um, and I definitely, I definitely noticed, um, noticed some detox reactions, noticed symptoms getting worse, but as was the story with all of this healing journey, it's, you know, not freaking out when the symptoms get worse and knowing that your body, this is part of the process and that this is a good sign and, and trying to retrain my, my limbic system, my mental, um, side of things to not just, Oh, this makes me feel bad. I'm going to stop. Um, which is a really hard thing to do, but AP, ABART and, uh, the AFNG, which is the fungal, um, Byron White tincture. Carly, give us an idea. You know, we've talked to a lot of people. So we always talk about, we love our, our friend, Nick Terensky, who we've interviewed on this podcast. And he was treated too aggressively up front with antibiotics and it caused him to develop a seizure disorder and cause damage that he's still trying to unravel from too aggressively treating, causing this too aggressive of a Herxheimer reaction. And it really gave him a, a major setback. So there are people that go just really like hardcore and then end up doing some damage. And there are people who are too timid and won't do anything because they had the slightest, you know, increase in symptoms. So how did you balance that of not going too hardcore with the, the herxing and, you know, the, the die-off effect, but also making sure you were doing, you know, it gently enough where you were making progress, right? That, that's such a hard balance. I feel like, what was your mindset towards that? Yeah. I mean, it, I'm still in treatment. I'm, it, it's been a year. And when I first kind of had this epiphany of being diagnosed with Lyme, I, I thought, okay, a month max and I'll, and I'll feel better. You know, nobody's really ever sick for more than a week. If, if we're lucky and we're healthy, you get, you know, a virus that knocks you out for a week. But after that first month went by, you know, I was getting sicker from, from treatment and, and then another month went by and then, and then six months went by. And then I, I, started to slowly realize that this is, this is going to be a process for me. I'm not going to get better overnight, but to answer your question, it was all a learning process and, and researching and learning about the Herxheimer reaction, reading other people's stories, being parts of being a part of different Lyme communities and hearing that other people are going through this, that it's normal, that this is part of, you know, understanding that it's a biological reaction going on in your body and that your body, this is a normal thing for it to go through when you start to really detox and kill off pathogens. Once I understood that, it was, it was easier to understand and, and listen to my body and know if I was pushing it too hard or I could give it a little bit more. Um, really, like I said earlier, you have to listen and be intuitive with your own body. Everybody's different. 
And, and of course, it takes a toll on your mental health as well while treating, right? Because it's sort of like one step forward, two steps back, five steps forward, you know, two steps back, whatever it may be. So we know we've talked a lot about the nervous system side of things and being able to have a state of calm and grounding. Well, you know, you also did things like, I'm probably going to say this wrong, Qigong, or I think is how it's pronounced. And I know it's another thing that we hear in the community people use to help get movement and blood flow, but also help calm the nervous system. So is, did you find that to be an effective tool, I guess, A, for movement slash moderate exercise for people that are really, really sick, and B, a tool to help you get a, to a state of calm when you had anxiety or or a bad mental health day from treatment? Yeah, I, I don't know how to pronounce it correctly, either Qigong or Qigong. Um, and this is something that I have started more recently. Um, and uh, like I said, I've kind of gone down every you know, from Ayurveda to ancient Chinese medicine to, you know, all of these different um, kind of ancient healing techniques and Qigong is rooted um, in history here. And, and, and I, it's also more about, for me, the energy healing that, that Qigong was providing. Uh, my grandfather is actually a Reiki master. So I grew up in a very kind of energy healing. Um, I was exposed to, to energy healing from a young age and and really believe in, in all of that stuff. And so Qigong is a way of moving energy, stagnant energy um, throughout your body and, and rebalancing your chi. And, and so, yes, when you have Lyme, even getting out of bed can feel, you know, so painful and movement is a really important part of, you know, getting your lymph flowing. Um, but also there's a, there's an energy that happens through movement and Qigong really focuses on, on clearing and moving that energy, um, which is also really important. And, and then, yeah, the movement also adds to the, the nervous system. And, and anytime you take a walk, you, you notice it, you feel better after. Um, so same with yoga or these kind of slower, more moderate um, exercises, which for someone who has Lyme, it, it can seem so daunting to just do these small things, but it, it really is important and will help. So Carly, talk to us about, I believe it's MBSR, that mind, body, spirit release therapy. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And, and have, it seems like you use that based on your pre-interview questionnaire. Was something that you felt was helpful? And just if you can explain to our audience what that is. That's so funny, this podcast. I, I really feel like I've tried it all. <laughs> and um, MBSR is another one of the things that I, through the wormhole of, of chronic Lyme and, and holistic health, I, I stumbled upon. Um, and found a practitioner and did, I think three or four sessions. Um, and I found it really interesting. I, I wouldn't necessarily say I had a huge um, revelation or epiphany or release of emotion or, or pain or tension, but just the process of really getting in touch with your mental health and knowing, knowing that from a young age, your mental health is, is shaped, whether it's through, you know, stories that you tell yourself or traumas that you live through and those emotions can store in your body and, and come up as pain later on. And so your emotional body and your mental body are, are as important as your physical, especially for someone trying to overcome chronic Lyme. So MBSR therapy is something that really helps your emotional and mental health. And I found it really interesting and I was able to um, really work through some stuff that that I might not have explored and whether it helped or not. I mean, I think 
all these things together will will add up and have I have made so much progress. So I don't know if I can pinpoint any one thing, but that was another one of the things I I added onto my list. <laughs> Carly, is that is it is it like a talk therapy session? I just want to understand better what it is. Is it more of like an energy healing over the phone? Is it talk therapy? I just you know I don't know enough about what it is to understand how that would work. If somebody's listening and they want to explore, just to give them a little more clarity and comfort about pursuing it possibly. Yeah, it's a mix. It's a mix of that. It's energy, picking up on energy. And, you know, I'm not a professional in that space. So I don't fully know on their end what goes into it. But my understanding is that there is some sort of energy reading that is done that picks up on different areas of your body that may be out of balance or maybe storing toxins or trapped emotions, uh, traumas, toxins or trapped emotions. And then there's this, um, talk therapy that that's part of it that allows you to kind of explore those things and, and discuss them in a way that you might not have thought about. So now we know for the past four months, you've been on the Byron White protocols and there's been some herxing, but I mean, overall, it seems like you're doing far better in just one year of being diagnosed after this, I believe it was what, about a 10 year, a 10 year journey of being sick, right? So give us an idea, Carly, before Rich picks up, how are you feeling today? And give us some, I always like this part of the interview because so many people are like, I was so bad. I'm so bad. I, ca I can't get better. But I like hearing from somebody like you who a year ago was in such a bad place, but we know you're still treating, but you're doing so much better today, right? I want to just give some hope and inspiration to our listeners here about where you are and then tell us where you plan on going next in your healing journey. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say I'm about 75% back to my full health. Um, coming from really 0% a year ago. So I've made an extraordinary, you know, I've made extraordinary progress and continue to see progress, but that doesn't mean I don't have a bad day or a bad week or symptoms don't flare here and there, but I'm able to handle them so much better and they're much less severe in general. So yeah, I mean, I'm just so happy to have my life back and to be able to work again and and travel and just find joy um, each day more than I was a year ago. It was It was really, really challenging and so many things I missed out on. I remember my best friend's wedding, you know, a couple months after getting diagnosed and it was just crushing. I was you know, invited to be her maid of honor and her wedding and dear friend of mine and things like that, those experiences that I missed out on, I'll always be sad about, but I'm, you know, in a much more balanced place now and, and will continue to get better and I am continuing to get better. So the goal here is to just feel better than I ever have. So I'm going to keep working on it until I get there. So Carly, you shared with us uh, the various tools that you've used, and there have been a lot of them over the course of the last year. Um, if you were to go back a year ago and you were to speak to your younger self and you were to describe to her what steps she should take, what would you recommend and would you do anything differently than you've done over the course of the last year? Yeah, I would say... From the moment I started to feel symptoms 10 years ago, don't ignore them. 
even if doctors are telling you you're fine and tests are coming back, don't ignore your body because it's telling you something for a reason. And that's exactly what I did is I ignored the symptoms. They would kind of go away and then they would get worse. And before I knew it, 10 years went by and everything came to a head. So listen to your body. So now you, you, you and I had a really interesting conversation about, you know, the nuance of listening to your body and responding to your body. And, 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 and I think this is, that was really powerful. So I'd like to explore that with you in a little more detail. So you talked a little bit about listening to your body and when your body tells you to stop, you stop. But then when you're engaging in the treatment that you were engaging in, you were feeling sick, but you had to retrain your limbic system so that you would not, uh, so that you would not stop the treatment, right? How did you make that balance? Was that a cognitive process where you were talking with other people in the community or was your practitioner helping you to understand that you were going to feel some of this so that you weren't going to be stopping? I mean, that's, you know, I, I'd like to know more about that. And I'll just share with you and our listeners one of the mistakes that I had made was when I was uh, when I first has been biking a couple of years ago. I, I treated with Dr. Casey Kelly. We decided I was going to use the Restore Kit as a as a prophylactic tool. And then when I saw it to Herx, I threw out the kit yeah. uh, because I didn't really understand what the Herx, what Herx was. And she was and and and, and Dr. Kelly prepared me for the Herx on her on her portal. There's a lot of materials about Herxing and I, and, Herxing and I read it all. But you know what I did was I stopped because yeah. I was listening to my body. So how did you strike that balance between hearing the signal, feeling the signal, however you're, you're getting that signal, and then, you know, and not ignoring it? Because you, you did say, hey, the mistake I made early on was I was ignoring the signal. Right. <laughs> well, now, how do you know when you should be ignoring the signal? And how do you know when you shouldn't be ignoring the signal? Oh, man. There's no, there's no magic to it. There's no you know, precise, or maybe there is magic to it, but no precise answer. Um, or maybe there is, Cody, because I'm asking, I mean, is that where practitioners come in, right? One of the things that we're always concerned about on this podcast is when we do the doctor bashing, and it is something we should be doing. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we're we also often concerned that people are now going to just strike out on their own and they're not going to work with a practitioner, right? So, I mean, is, 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 is you know, and one of the yeah. things we learned from Ali Lazowski, whose uh, podcast we, we uh, released today, um, uh, August 20th, 2022, is that she worked with a psychologist to help put her read her signals, right? So, I mean, that, I think that's where the sort of the coaching comes in from whether they be psychologists or, yeah. or medical doctors. And again, you use the community as a vehicle yeah. for communicating with people. So talk to, talk to us about what that, that process is because a signal is a signal, right? It's information right. that our body is giving us, but it doesn't mean we automatically do what I did and that's throw the shit out and stop using right. it, right? Yeah, I think it's interesting you bring up psychiatrists because that is another avenue that I that I went down and and so much of it was about, you know, being the witness of these symptoms. So a symptom can arise in your body and training yourself to detach from it and become the witness, the observer of this, not reacting one way or the other. And really being in that strong mental state where you're able to identify, is this an emergency? Do I need to get immediate care? Is this part of the process. And, and when you really tap into that, your body and mind will tell you it, it just will. And I think 
when you have that combined with the community, combined with your own research and understanding of the science and biology behind what's happening in your system, having a, a doctor to guide you, I think all of it helps so that you're able to feel confident in, in your treatment and, and not let these symptoms overwhelm you or you know you you kind of are able to get back in control of your body without it you know without being in such a reactionary state if that makes sense absolutely so it it is it, it's if you're if you're a witness to the signal then you can evaluate cognitively evaluate the signal and determine what to do with it right because there is the danger zone that Matt talked with you about before right some of that is being a part of the suck up culture some of it is having this expectation that we're going to be better in a day or a week or a month when this is really a longer journey. It's more of a marathon than it is, you know, a medical sprint. And if you ignore the signal and you suck it up, then you can become chronically worse because yeah. you've, you've gone too hard. And, and, and Matt used the Nick Terinsky example, but there are many others in the community where, you know, where being too extreme and too aggressive with your treatment and ignoring your your body signals that hey this is too much could put you in a in a worse state than you than you began with when you began the journey right so this is this is more nuanced where you have to be in tune to your body you have to listen to the body you have to witness the signal and maybe using practitioners and other people in the community to help you evaluate that signal and then take appropriate cognitive action not emotional not reactive right. so that you're finding yourself in the sweet spot where you're not ignoring the signal, uh, where you're either not getting the information at all, or you're ignoring it to the point where you're getting into a danger zone. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes practice. I still am practicing. And, and there's different things that'll come up throughout my day where I'm able now to be, to, to know that, you know, I, I'm trying to think of an example, an example, but I think you summarized it well there. Right, so let's talk about what was happening to you while you were working on your working on your disease, right? I mean, you, this is this is always a transformational experience. We we learn a lot more about ourselves than we knew before the journey began. So talk to us about how this has been transformational for you. And I know you're still at the early stages of your of your treatment journey, but even even through the last 18 months or so that you've been on the um, on the healing journey. How has this been transformational for you? It's been extremely transformational. I think any time you face such a low, you're bound to go through some sort of transformational experience, which is exactly how I would describe it. It's like, I under have such a deeper understanding now of, the human experience and what it's meant to be human because I've felt such pain and suffering. And that's part of it. To feel the highest joys, you need to, I think, go through some pain. And I was living in such a place of constant highs that I almost sometimes think that, you know, this crash for me was inevitable with the lifestyle I was living and among so many other things. But I really feel that the transformation has happened on a, on such a holistic level of mind, body, spirit, and has led me to be a more compassionate and understanding and whole person now. 
So talk to us about what you now know about these God-given tools that you have and how you're using them differently or you're planning to use them differently than you had been using them in the past. And God-given tools like... Your gifts, who you are, what your yeah. purpose is. I mean, the whole the whole process, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you were yeah. living this nomadic, artistic life, right? So you yeah. clearly had a set of talents that were given to you that you were developing over time, and now you're going to be using them differently. So how are you going to be using these tools differently, and how are you going to serve the world and humanity differently than you were before you got sick? I love this question because as I look to the right of me, I have a a vision board that I recently made (laughs) and something that I've been exploring more is art therapy and this intersection of how color can heal, how art can heal, how light photography. I don't have it all totally mapped out yet, but I know that I have this calling as an artist to create artwork that invites people to go within to to heal on different emotional levels and there's a lot of science behind color therapy and, and art therapy and and it's definitely a new direction that I feel called to explore after going through this experience and you know, Carly, I, I thought when you and Matt were having the conversation about light therapy, that that was going to foreshadow where we are here, right? Where you went from being this nomad who is capturing beauty and you are posting beauty and selling beauty to now understanding that artistically there's a healing element to what it is that you were identifying and capturing, but presenting very differently, right? I thought you were foreshadowing that and it's quite frankly, where I was hoping you were going to go, right? Because this, your God-given artistic talents also are healing, right? And you are now going to be able to serve very differently than just capturing and presenting. But now you're going to be helping people to heal through these different artistic lenses. Absolutely. I mean, you said it, you summarized it really well there. And I think that is the direction and the calling that I have to, to use my art to help others heal and to continue to heal myself. And I think being creative and tapping into your creativity on a daily basis has healing powers in, it, in itself. And so really, you know, tapping into my inner artist and, and helping others heal through art. And haven't you been tapping into your inner artist the entire time? Because isn't 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 uh, an artist somebody who is going to use trial and error to, in a very brave way, to um, to improve what it is that that in your case she is developing, right? So, yeah, you you use a broad spectrum of healing, but it was really a process, an artistic process that you used each time to be brave enough to try something new. You took the action, you, 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 you stepped away from the paralysis that's so difficult for all of us to try something new and not just on a line journey, but anyone. And then, and then, you, then you read your body signals, which told you whether or not it was helpful or not. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. And if it did work, you continued to do more of it. And you just kept moving from, you kept pivoting. And, and what was happening as you were pivoting, you were gaining momentum. And then you'd pivot more and gain more momentum. And that was really an artistic process, wasn't it? Yeah, that's a beautiful analogy, the creative process. And 
the healing process for chronic illness. I think there's a lot of um, parallels there that are quite beautiful. And I never thought of it in that way, maybe out loud, but I think that, that there are a lot of parallels and perhaps this whole process of healing chronic illness has also been this sort of rebirth of my inner artist and this whole process mm-hmm. is really going to just manifest into something beautiful that I may not have been able to to have without this suffering and failure and pain and trial and error so hey, good things good things are are coming <laughs> We know that they are and we're really excited to continue to stay in touch with you so we can help folks in the community um, shortcut their healing journey through the very different tools you're going to be offering that anyone else we've ever interviewed has even broached with us. And that's why this has been (laughs) such a beautiful podcast and you're such a beautiful human. So in the spirit of being a beautiful human, we need some more help from you. Uh, If God forbid your husband, who has been a part of this journey with you, came into your room right after this podcast... um, after walking out in the, you know, the nature in Maine and found a tick biting him, what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Yeah, I mean, there's the obvious kind of preventative measures. First of all, if you're going to go walking outside, just being aware of wearing long socks or pants and pulling your socks over the pants and and having, you know, some sort of tick repellent or essential oil repellent. Um, I love doTERRA's Terra Shield essential oil. It's got citronella and great things in there, um, non-toxic. And so starting there and then making sure when you get home, fully doing a tick check and and helping each other out and and taking your your clothes off and and showering or changing, um, avoiding long, tall, grassy fields. Um, there's some of these things you can definitely do. And if you do find a tick on you, there's, you know, a certain protocol to follow, making sure you properly remove it. Um, you can treat the the site immediately with, you know, some sort of antiseptic or, um, I've even used, um, different, um, like charcoal masks and things that'll pull toxins out, um, and saving the tick and sending it in for testing because, I have heard that it's a lot easier to diagnose the tick than it is the human. So um, there's a lot of resources out there now where you can save that tick and, you know, send it off for immediate testing if it was indeed biting you. And then there's the prophylactic measures of, you know, taking certain antimicrobials, um, incorporating those right away into your um, daily routine, just as a preventative measure, looking out for any acute signs and symptoms, bullseye rash, which not everybody gets, I didn't get myself, all sorts of things um, like that. But but beyond that, something that I would like to also share is that everybody can do starting right now is just getting your your health and wellness into a better place and, and adopting a healthier lifestyle, eating healthier, getting the right exercise, meditating, taking walks in nature. These are all things that you can do to build up your immune system and your your whole body's wellness so that if something like a tick bites you, it might not throw your whole system haywire. And I mentioned earlier, a lot of people say in the Lyme community, it's never just Lyme. And I don't think it was just Lyme for me. And so 
really making sure that your health is, is in a great place so that if you get bit by a tick, you at least have a lot of, you know, your immune system is strong and you have a way to fight off these things in a, in a better way than, than you might, if you, if you aren't a healthy person. So I'd love to share that too. Thank you, Carly, for everything you shared. This was one really wonderful podcast and you're a wonderful young woman and uh, you really blessed us with all of this, you know, your beautiful story and all of the um, shortcuts that you're offering to folks in the community. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Carly Rudd. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Carly Rudd, please visit her Instagram page at Carly's Camera. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note, we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, the members of our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.